You heard just a small portion of my interview with Simon Cole in episode 23. Because of the importance of this subject matter, as it relates to Ivan's case, I'd like to share the full interview in this supplemental episode, as he discusses in detail the history of fingerprinting and the error rate of fingerprint identification. Dr. Simon Cole is the director of the National Registry of Exonerations and the author of Suspect Identities, A History of Fingerprinting and Criminal Identification, and co-author of Truth Machine, The Contentious History of DNA Fingerprinting. I first became familiar with his work by reading his publication, More Than Zero, Accounting for Error Rate and Latent Fingerprint Identification. This is my interview with Dr. Cole. My name's Simon Cole. I'm a historian and sociologist of science, and I'm a professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine. So do you feel that the general public's understanding of latent fingerprint identification is that it's infallible? And if so, why? Why is that? And uh, do you believe that it's infallible? I think that historically, there, uh, for many decades, uh, maybe even a century, there was a widespread public belief that it was infallible. Uh, I'm not sure that's as true now. I think uh, more people are learning uh, more about the field and um, and are, are less inclined to uh, to believe it's infallible. Um, the The reason they thought it was infallible was because they were told. Uh, it was um, primarily by practitioners from the late print discipline who um, actually until uh, relatively recently used the term infallible to describe um, their own uh, practices. And so uh, do you believe uh, fingerprint identification to be infallible? Oh, um, no, I do not. Um, I mean, first of all, nothing is infallible, um, and certainly nothing, no kind of scientific practice is infallible. Uh, And second, uh, in terms of uh, fingerprint identification, uh, there there have been errors. Um, There have been known to be errors in in the United States since at least as early as 1920. Um, So uh, we knew all along that that there were errors, and so that those undermine that claim to infallibility. Um, what happened for part of that time is that those those errors that were known were kind of explained away with some kind of excuse why they shouldn't be counted, and we should still call the technique infallible, even though there were these errors. And so, what is the error rate in latent fingerprint identification? Well, uh, that we don't know. Um, we know that there are errors, but of course, the, we don't. What we don't know is whether the errors, the the few errors that we do know about that are publicly known, whether those are all the errors that actually occur, or are there hidden errors um, that nobody knows about, where um, an error occurred, um, somebody perhaps was convicted, perhaps of a low-level crime, and um, and no one had the resources to challenge this identification. We have no idea how many cases like that there might be. Uh, it wasn't really until uh, around 2011 
that the first science, you know, properly designed scientific studies designed to measure the accuracy of fingerprint identification were actually published. Uh, and those studies found um, false positive error rates um, of around one half of a percent. Um, so that's five in a thousand or so. Um, a false positive error is the kind of error where you say that a fingerprint is from somebody and it's not from them. Uh, the opposite is, of course, a false negative error in which you say a fingerprint is not from somebody and, in fact, it, it was from from that person. Um, the, the results of these studies have to be interpreted with caution um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, false positive and false negative error rates are related. Um, you can keep your false positive rate down by increasing your false negative rate and, and vice versa. So they have to be considered together. Um, second, we don't know whether the performance uh, in these studies, uh, how well that maps on to the performance in real life. Um, the people who did the studies knew that they were participating in studies. Did that make them per perform better? Did it make them perform worse? Are the people who participated in the studies better at what they do than the average person in real life? Um, a lot of those questions aren't, aren't really answered. Um, so those studies give us a sense of um, a, a sense of an error rate. Um, but there's a lot of debate over um, to, to what extent you could rely on those precise numbers to as a as a as a kind of um, responsible estimate of the error rate of fingerprint identification. So, so just to be clear, um, we're saying, to the best of your knowledge, you would put the, or at least the studies say that the error rate is 0.5%? Um, yeah, I would say that the, the best study that we have uh, found an error rate of about, of about half a percent. Um, you, you may have, uh, there's a report by a group called... Um, PCAST, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, that uh, put something called a confidence interval around that error rate. And so they say, well, what that actually means is that the error rate could be as high as one in 300. Um, so that's another way of, of interpreting that error rate. Okay. And, and is, there, <clears throat> is there a record of how many fingerprint identification reversals there have been in criminal cases? Um, I, I assume you you don't quite mean reversals, but you mean known cases of erroneous identification? Correct. Yeah, where identifications that were made that resulted in an arrest or conviction that was later reversed or, or overturned. Um, yeah, I mean, I've tried to collect... Um, publicly known, documented cases of erroneous identification, um, and I've collected 37 such cases worldwide in the entire history of fingerprinting, um, and 23 of those cases come from the United States. Um, now, that should be taken in the context of that those are publicly known cases. 
um, and latent fingerprint practitioners who come across erroneous identifications as part of their work say that they've seen many more erroneous identifications uh, than that. Um, so there's one fingerprint examiner says that he's seen he saw 38 um, erroneous identifications in a single year, uh, which is more than all the publicly known ones that I know about. So so there's kind of privately known erroneous identifications that that we in the public can't really count. Yes, I mean, so is is there a way to speculate um, how many erroneous identifications that there may be out there? I mean, is there a way to speculate at that math? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard uh, because, again, you, you're all you know about are the ones that that you know about. And and then you have to kind of multiply those out into the into the criminal justice system. Um, but of course, if, if we just if we just limit it to the United States, then even that error rate of say half a percent found in that study would be thousands of erroneous identifications. Just because our our criminal justice system is so large, and uh, fingerprint identification is used relatively often. Um, another one of the telling things is that the um, the erroneous identifications that we do know about tend to come overwhelmingly from serious crimes, murders, and and so on. Uh, so the question is why that is. Do you believe that fingerprint misidentifications occur more often in murder cases because they're maybe the case is more serious, so they're under more pressure to convict someone? Or do you think they occur at the same rate in robbery and burglary cases, but it's just that we don't find out about it because you don't have the kinds of resources brought to bear to expose an erroneous um, identification? And, and if it's the second one, if it's that they occur at the same rate in, in robberies and burglaries, then we know about hardly any of those misidentifications. So that we would have to think there's a lot of hidden errors in those kinds of cases. Uh, the lower level, less serious crimes. To your knowledge, has there been a erroneous identification in a death penalty case? Um, yeah. Um, I did look it up since we talked. And uh, I believe in my article, More Than Zero, I talk a bit about the Ray Crone case, which was uh, a death penalty case and did involve um, an erroneous fingerprint identification. And, and so... And, uh, so that's Ray Crone in Arizona. Okay. And so um, so there has been one? At least one, yes. Gotcha. And now, uh, did you uh, get a chance to review uh, Mr. Ludis's fingerprint report? And um, if so, what were your thoughts on it? Um, well, um, Mr. Ludis uh, alleges that this that there's an erroneous identification in uh, this case, um, and that he's seen other erroneous identifications in other cases. Uh, so um, that uh, you know is a very serious charge. Um, 
that there that there could be an erroneous identification in this case. Um, and I, w- I was impressed by the level of, I'm, I'm not a fingerprint examiner, um, but I was impressed by the level of detail and documentation that, um, that he contained in his report supporting his conclusions. Uh, and so it will be up to other uh, fingerprint examiners to, to look at that documentation and, and see what they think of it. In your estimation, is fingerprint identification a science? In my view is that I'm not, I don't think it's particularly important and I'm not particularly interested in arguing about whether it's a science or it's not a science. Um, identif- um, d- determining what you can from information left from um, friction ridges, like parts of the body, on uh, at a crime scene is a scientific issue. So, um, so it, it if it isn't a science, it should be. And people treat it as science. So, I, you know, I I'm happy to I'm happy to call it a science. And I, I don't think um, I don't think the important question is to argue about whether it's a science or not. I think the important question to answer is how accurate is it. Uh, whether it's a science or not, how accurate is it? Right. Um, and, and are you confident? Um, do you feel that that 0.5% uh, is, uh, w- would be accurate in, in your estimation? Or do you think um, it is no. lower? No, I, I think that's just the first study. Um, that's just one study. And, um, and you know, what you, what you tend to do, the, the reason that the um, uh, President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology um, advocates putting a confidence interval around the results of that study is because in science, what you tend to want to do is do many studies. And then um, all of the studies will come up with estimates of the accuracy rate, and those will probably begin to cluster around whatever the true accuracy rate actually is, which you're never going to find out from, from a single study. So, um, so, you know, the true accuracy rate could be uh, very close to that estimate, um, or, uh, or it, it, it could be far from it. Um, I also think that the, the answer to the question you know, the error rate of fingerprint identification is, you know, if we ultimately do the research, it's not going to be as simple as a single number, unfortunately. Um, the answer is going to have a lot to do with um, a lot of factors, such as the skill of the examiners involved, the quality of the late print. I mean, we should expect that there are going to be easy prints with a very low error rate, and they're going to be much more difficult and challenging uh, prints with a higher error rate. Um, and then, crucially, also is the relationship between false positives and, and false negatives that we discussed before. That um, it, it depends to some extent on how the examiners are calibrating themselves and which kind of error they're trying harder to avoid. Are they trying harder to avoid 
making a false positive or are they trying harder to avoid making a false negative? Right. And I think a, a lot of people um, might assume that a latent print is found at a crime scene and it's put into a computer and the computer spits out whose fingerprint that is. Um, but but that's not how it works, right? Uh, that's right. That's not how it works anywhere um, at this at this time. Um, there's no place really that is relying on computers to make uh, final decisions on um, on crime scene prints. Um, there there are many places where uh, where law enforcement agencies rely on computers to make decisions about uh, what are called 10 prints, the kind of criminal records prints of all 10 fingers taken under ideal conditions that are very high quality. But when it comes to crime scene prints, no one is relying on computers to make, um, to make final decisions. So, so what the computers are doing is, is kind of like, they're like a search aid or a search tool. Um, uh, you know, a, a, an internet search engine like Google is a good analogy. What the computers are used for is to search the database and give the human examiners candidate matches. Um, and so they're basic, it's basically suggesting prints for the ex- human examiner to look at, saying, here's some, here's some prints you might, you might want to look at. Um, just like when we use an internet search engine, its job is to give you a page of results and say, you know, here's here's a page of twenty results that you know might have what you're looking for. Um, but that doesn't mean that the top result is always going to be exactly what you're what you're looking for. And is there uh, a typical number, say, if if it, if you put it into the computer system that uh, a certain number of suggestions that the computer will typically give, or does that um, is that just up to the examiner how many they wish it to be whittled down to? I guess. Yeah, um, th- there's not a typical number because that's just a question of um, what you ask the the computer system to do. Um, so you can ask it to give you the top twenty hits, or you could ask it to give you the top fifty hits. Uh, or you could ask it to give you all the hits above some certain score. Um, so, so what the computer gives you is entirely dependent on, on what uh, the human examiner asks the computer to do. Could you talk about some of the most famous um, uh, either erroneous identifications or false positives and, um, and then why they became well-known? Uh, sure. Probably the most uh, famous erroneous identification of all is the Brandon Mayfield case. Um, that was uh, came out of the Madrid train bombing in 2004 that eventually was attributed to Al-Qaeda. So it was the most significant um, Al-Qaeda attack after uh, 9-11 in uh, um in the United States, uh, and it was a simultaneous bombing of commuter trains in Madrid, Spain, and a print from uh, a plastic bag containing detonator equipment uh, found in a car at one of the uh, train stations 
um, was searched all over the world. And eventually the FBI claimed that the source of that print was an attorney in Portland, Oregon, named uh, Brandon Mayfield. Um, Mayfield did not have a, a valid passport and seemed like kind of an implausible suspect to be involved in this uh, train bombing. Um, but then kind of said, you know, some other circumstantial evidence, like the fact that he was a Muslim convert, um, that he represented uh, Muslims in uh, immigration cases and, and things like that, um, began to make him seem more plausible, perhaps, to the, to the FBI. Um, and, and Mayfield was subject to what's called a FISA warrant, a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, warrant, which, which is um, a rare kind of warrant that allows the authorities to uh, search his house without his knowledge, as opposed to the normal uh, search warrant in which you tell the person you're, you're searching their house. So they were surreptitiously uh, breaking into his home um, and his office when he was away. Uh, and, and keeping him under under surveillance, and uh, event, and eventually the news of this uh, this suspicion of Mayfield was going to leak in in Europe, and so they seized him and held him for um, about a week as a material witness in the uh, in the Madrid train bombing, until the um, Spanish authorities uh, came back to who had always been skeptical of the identification to Mayfield came back to the FBI and said, we have a better match for this, um, for this print. Um, and it's an Algerian guy who lives in Spain, um, named Daoud, who was eventually killed in a police raid. And upon looking at Daoud's print, the FBI conceded that they had made an error, um, that Daoud was indeed a more likely candidate uh, source for that print than, than Mayfield was. And, and Mayfield was released and eventually apologized to um, and, um, and won a civil judgment um, against the government. Uh, so this was... Um, a, a, this is a well-known error because, you know, A, it involved a high-profile um, terrorist bombing, uh, but second, because it involved the FBI, and um, no known misidentification before that had involved the FBI. The claim with previous misidentifications was always that, well, yes, okay, misidentifications do occur, but those are by incompetent people. And since the FBI um, was widely thought to be, whether whether it was or not, um, the premier um, fingerprint identification unit in the United States, uh, it was really impossible to claim that that what the reason for this was just that this was another incompetent laboratory that the FBI laboratory was in, incompetent. Um, so it, it to some extent proved for those who didn't believe it. Um, that even competent laboratories could could make errors. Uh, the other reason it was important was that the defense expert, the expert hired to examine the print on Mayfield's behalf, also agreed with the FBI's conclusion. So it uh, falsified the claim that, well, if anyone does make an error in fingerprint identification, the defense can always hire their own expert and they'll catch the error. 
um, because in this case, the defense expert did, did not catch the error in fact and agreed with this erroneous identification. What else should people know about latent fingerprint identification? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What else should people know about latent fingerprint identification? I think the principal thing to know is that it can be a very um, powerful and useful technique, even if it's not infallible. Um, it's not an all or nothing thing. And in some sense, the, the mistake was simply to claim infallibility, which is sort of a, an impossible thing to, to achieve. Um, and if, if they had been more modest in their initial claims, there wouldn't have been so much scandal and um, and debate um, in any kind of scientific activity, uh, errors are are expected, and mainstream science kind of takes this into account. Um, they have things like bias reduction procedures to kind of try to minimize error, but error is an inherent part of all scientific measurements. If you if you look at mainstream science, you'll see uh, tons of stuff about um, measurement error and and trying to measure measurement error and trying to account for and estimate measurement error. That's, that's part of anything from um, astronomy to physics to biology to medicine. Um, so so the, the fact that there are errors is, is, is to be expected and is part of any any scientific endeavor the so so it's not the fact that errors that that errors occur that's the scandal um the scandal is is not being transparent about it and and trying to deny that that it ever occurs um and and trying to avoid measuring it so so i think you know what well, what we need to do is just simply try to um, make the best estimates we can, get you know, get the best sense we can of the potential for for error in this uh, activity. And then what the public needs to do is treat the conclusion of a fingerprint examiner not as some kind of infallible truth that can't be wrong, um, but as a piece of evidence like any other um, that may be strong or or weak um and if it's strong it's perhaps 
unlikely to be wrong, but but it's always possible that it that it's uh, that it's wrong, and um, and then you need to consider it in the context of of other evidence in a particular case that might tell you. Uh, so you know if a if a fingerprint conclusion goes against a lot of strong other evidence, I think you, you would need to consider the possibility that that conclusion might uh, might in this case have been uh, incorrect. Um, and now let's get into your uh, books a little bit. Um, uh, tell me about your your first book, um, Suspect Identities, and uh, I guess why you were interested in that subject matter. Yeah, I got I got interested in that subject because I took a course on uh, science and law, and we did a unit on. Um, this is when I was in graduate school. We did a, we did a unit on uh, DNA typing. Um, or DNA fingerprinting, as it was called at that time, uh, which was kind of a new technology that was being introduced into the courtroom. And we read some of the um, the literature that was emerging at that time, saying that uh, DNA typing wasn't as reliable as the government was claiming it was, and uh, raising questions about some of the conclusions that were being drawn from DNA typing. And by the time we got done with that unit, we had really had our confidence in DNA typing kind of shaken. And uh, I thought to my and and I I said, well, what if it was fingerprinting? Would would we have the same questions? And could our our um, our confidence be shaken in in the same way? And and that sort of led to me trying to look to answer that question by looking at the time when fingerprinting was at the point in its history where DNA typing was at that time in the early 90s, a new thing in court being tested for the first time in some early trials. And so for fingerprinting, that was in the early part of the 20th century. So I went to sort of look at what was it like the first few times that fingerprinting was brought into a courtroom. And people were saying, what's up with this newfangled science? Should we trust it or not? and that led me to realize there wasn't really a scholarly history of, of fingerprint identification at that time. Uh, and the history turned out to be really fascinating. So it turned into a book on the history of, of fingerprinting. Yeah. And, and one thing that I thought was interesting was that fingerprints were not uh, originally intended to solve crimes. Is that is that right? That's right. Um, the uh, what we uh, fingerprinting were was for criminal record keeping, uh, and the purpose of criminal record keeping was to um, what was uh, basically punishment, right? It was when somebody's arrested um, for a crime. Do you want to so, so uh, do do you want to just punish them for the crime that they did, or? that they got caught for, or, and this is a familiar idea to us today, do you want to punish people more severely if they have a long criminal history, right? If this is their 20th crime versus if it's their first crime. Now, now there was a time when that was thought to be very strange, that you just punish people for the thing they had done right then, and you didn't care um, how many times they, they had done it. But in the 19th century, you developed this idea of uh, reformist jurisprudence, it was called, that 
you know, that's not actually right. We want to punish so-called hardened criminals uh, or habitual criminals more harshly. And first-time offenders, we want to kind of correct them and give them another chance, right? Because we have more of a chance of reintegrating them into society. So it's very important to know uh, whether it's this person's first offense or it's their 20th offense. But you can't know that if you don't have criminal record keeping because all somebody has to do is use a different name when you arrest them and suddenly they've got a clean criminal record again. So you need some kind of method of criminal identification that's taken from the body and not just from somebody saying, this is what my name is, this is saying what their identity is. And after experimenting with a number of kind of techniques that were um, expensive and elaborate and difficult to use, uh, f fingerprinting came along as, as another way of, um, of linking the criminal record to the body through the through the fingertips, um, and so so yes. Yeah, so the primary use of it was for criminal record keeping, uh, what we would today think of as ten print identification. Uh, so when when if you're arrested and and booked um, at a police station, they'll take your fingerprints and they'll compare those to their database of of fingerprints to see if you, you are who you say you are, and you're not um, someone who already has a long criminal history in their database using a fake, a fake name. Um, so, that, so that was the original use of it. And then the, um, the use of fingerprints from crime scenes kind of evolved later as people began to notice these fingerprints at crime scenes and said, hey, maybe we can get that criminal records guy who spends all their time looking at fingerprints and keeping and keeping a, a cabinet full of records, maybe that guy can look at these, um, these crime scene prints for us. Yeah, and um, I guess the first known cases, or the first known case of actually using a fingerprint identification, what, it happened right around the turn of the century, like 1900-ish? Well, there's a lot of debate over what, what the first case is, um, and uh, I think I, I, I believe I say in the book I found a case as late as um, the late 1850s mm. um, in the United States that's kind of murky, um, and then there are a few subsequent cases. There's an Argentina case from 1892, um, so there, there's a lot of... Um, uh, claims to be the first, the first case, um, but uh, and and then some of those cases got kind of lost to history. So, um, so somewhere between, you know, eighteen fifty eight and eighteen ninety two is the first case, first crime scene case. Gotcha. And I mean, is it fair to say that over the nineteen hundreds, as this fingerprinting was first introduced, that um, it was debated throughout the, the decades. Is, is that fair? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, uh, for, for one thing, um, uh, you know, one question early on was, should we have, ex should we have experts at all? 
um, why should we have this clerk who I described earlier, the criminal records clerk, why should we have them come in as an expert witness and tell us that the two fingerprints come from the same source? Why don't we just look at it? Why don't we as judges just look at the prints ourselves and make a judgment? Or why don't we just hand it to the jury and let them decide whether they think these prints come from the same source? And the early uh, fingerprint experts were saying, no, you know, we we have this skill and experience in interpreting latent prints. And so you need to let us interpret them for you because you may not uh, know your way around a print um, in in the same way that uh, that we do. And now a lot of people think that, um, you know, there, there must be. Um, a threshold of uh, points that must match on a fingerprint identification, but is that how it works? Is there a number of points that it must match? Um, no. Um, uh, first of all, there's no point at which um, it must match, right? So there's no point, at, as we discussed earlier, um, Fingerprinting is not infallible. It's not 100% accurate. And so there's no point threshold at which you can responsibly claim, okay, above this point threshold, there's not going to be any errors. My accuracy is going to be 100%. Um, what, what you might be able to say is that as the number of points or features that I'm looking at increases, the likelihood of error gets smaller and, you know, above some thir certain threshold, I think that the likelihood of errors is very, is, is very small, and, and that likelihood is sort of acceptable to me, right? So it's an acceptably small uh, likelihood of error. But that doesn't mean you've, you've eliminated the, the likelihood of error entirely. Um, now, in, in terms of point thresholds, it's kind of a complicated history. Um, over the course of the 20th century, a number of of law enforcement agencies sort of made up numbers of points that they thought they felt safe with this number of points. And that become kind of, became kind of widely misunderstood as some kind of scientific rule that said if you have this number of prints, then the, the technique, the, sorry, this number of points, that the technique then is 100% accurate. And that's not really what it meant at all. What it, and, and these these numbers points were not scientifically derived from scientific studies. They were just made up by law enforcement agencies uh, that we feel comfortable with this number of points. So, so that's all that it really was. Um, uh, then beginning in the 1970s, um, some people within the fingerprint discipline began saying, you know, these, these point thresholds are really not scientific. They're just made up numbers of points. And so we shouldn't really be, be talking about them. And, and moreover, they made the valid point that, you know, the number of points in a, uh, in a late fingerprint is not actually, you know, an entirely valid measure of how, Good quality that latent print is. You, know, you could have a very good quality uh, latent print with a lot of information in it that has only six points, and you could have a very low quality um, 
print with poor information in it that has 16 points. So these, these numbers of points are just kind of rough measures. And, um, and with that, these kinds of point thresholds kind of fell out of favor in favor of uh, argument, which was just there shouldn't be any number of, of there shouldn't be any threshold of points. It should just be each print has to be evaluated on its own. Is this high quality or low quality? How much information is in it? And that persisted for a while um, until recently, as a lot of criticisms of fingerprint identification have begun to emerge and the discipline is beginning to respond to those criticisms and try to be more, more precise about what they mean by a high quality print and what they mean by a low quality print. And now points are coming back uh, to some extent, um, not as really a strict threshold, but as um, as, as at least one of one of several pieces of information about the quality of the print so that you might want to talk about the number of points. Um, uh, but but not as a strict threshold, but as a general guideline to generally uh, latent prints with more points are, are generally higher quality than prints with lower points. Gotcha. So, Tell me about your 2005 article, uh, More Than Zero, and, and why you decided to delve deeper into that subject matter. Well, the title of that article came out of some kinds of notorious uh, claims that the FBI was making, um, both in... Um, uh, primarily in a case called the United States versus Byron Mitchell in the late 1990s, um, in which I, I was involved as an expert witness for the defense, um, in which the FBI was giving testimony that the um, that the error rate of fingerprint identification was zero, and um, and as we discussed earlier. I don't think that's correct, both because no, the error rate of any scientific endeavor is not zero, um, and we knew about erroneous identifications even even at that time. Um, and, and outside of court, those those very words were repeated in a uh, 60 Minutes, uh, the TV show 60 Minutes uh, segment about that case, uh, where, again, the FBI was saying the, the error rate is, is zero. Um, and so the the title of that article was kind of taking aim at uh, at that claim um, by discussing the um, the publicly known cases of erroneous identification that we knew about um, the errors in proficiency tests that, while not properly scientific error rate studies at least gave us some information about um, about possible errors in, in, in casework. Um, and, and so, so and, and then um, the Mayfield case um, broke prior to the publication of that article. So that case um, really strongly refuted the claim that there weren't any errors and in fact refuted the claim that the FBI um, didn't did make errors. Um, so it, it kind of brought this um, 
that so that was the the uh, the the origin of that title more than zero, which was taking aim at that that zero error rate claim. Which I, I should say now, um, about twenty years later, even the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI are saying um, you should not testify or say that um, fingerprint identification has a zero error rate. Oh, so that that is their um, that's their statement that they they do not um, have people testify to that. Uh, yes, it is, and that's also the position of the International Association for Identification, the leading uh, professional organization for latent print examiners. Um, so they all take the position that you should not not say that. Now, it is possible that um, there are individuals who are saying that still in, um, in courtrooms, um, but, but those official bodies are advising against saying that. What do they say now? Is there, a, is there kind of a, a blanket statement of how they phrase uh, the identifications? Um, well, the identification or the error rate? The, well, the error rate, if it's, if it's brought up at trial. Um, yeah, often they will say, um, the error rate can't be known. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's an attempt to avoid talking about an error rate at all. So they'll talk about some of the problems with extrapolating an error rate, um, from the known studies to the real world. Um, occasionally the studies that we talked about earlier will be mentioned and the error rates from those studies, um, will be talked about. Um, but that's kind of rare, um, because in, in many cases, the prosecutor or the, um, late print examiner don't want to own, uh, the error rates from those studies. Uh, and so instead of saying the error rate is whatever it was in that study, they'll say the error rate is really unknowable um, or we don't have enough studies to know the error rate or the error rate in that study doesn't apply to me or it doesn't apply to my laboratory. So there are all, all sorts of ways of, of kind of avoiding um, uh, um, acknowledging, to, using the, no, the studies that we have to as an estimate, as our best available estimate of the error rate. Gotcha. And and tell me about your uh, second book, The uh, Truth Machine, The Contentious History of DNA Fingerprinting. Well, Truth Machine is in some sense, although it's, um, you know, it's, it's written with three other authors, um, there's some sense in which it's a sequel to my first book on the suspect identities on the history of fingerprinting because it's about kind of a similarly controversial forensic technique um, whose, uh, where the controversy emerged much later, um, you know, in the, in the 1990s. Um, but, uh, and, and, but similar debates, but also it also covers the impact of the scientific debate over DNA typing back onto fingerprinting. So in some sense, it traces a kind of strange 
full circle trajectory from the early 1990s when um, DNA examiners were saying, we have this new technique and, you know, we're not saying it's as good as fingerprinting, of course. Um, You know, fingerprinting is, you know, absolutely certain identification of a single person. But we are saying that our technique is pretty good. Um, And, you know, over the course of a decade or so, you get to a position where, you know, that becomes absurd. And DNA typing is really the dominant forensic technique. And uh, fingerprinting is playing catch up to, um, to DNA typing. And, and the primary way in which it's playing catch up is that, um, is that DNA experts are able to quantify their conclusions. Um, they're able to give these things called random match probabilities, which were estimates of the number of people in a population who might be found consistent with a particular DNA profile. And fingerprint examiners were not able to do anything like that. Instead, they said fingerprinting doesn't need numbers, it doesn't need statistics, um, because it's absolutely certain um, only one person can can be um, can be the source of the print. Um, and people started saying, no, that that's not right. You have to um, actually do scientific studies and um, measure how rare these fingerprint features that you're looking at are in the population and give some kind of estimate of it. It's not good enough to say statistics apply to DNA evidence, but they don't apply to fingerprint evidence. So that kind of puts fingerprinting on the defensive to produce some kind of quantification of itself, which is what we're still living through today. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.